Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be entertaining you for the next hour. I've got a lot of interesting articles. It's now after tax season, which is very good for me. I've really missed being able to have a little free time, and today was a wonderful day. Nothing to do except, well, nothing to do. And I always enjoy April 16th. It's always a very, very interesting day. Plus, the weather's pretty good. I do have a bit of a cold, so if you hear a little bit of whatever, forgive me for that. I'm just now catching up on all my sleep. It's been a long last nine or ten days, I would say. The interesting thing about tax season for me is I stopped actually seeing people for appointments around April 1st. And from then on, it's mainly night shift work. I try to get into my office by 3 or 4 o'clock so that if I need to call somebody that's leaving by 5, I can get back to people. The main thing is the last two or three days, I actually just work really late till like 5 or 6 in the morning because the only way I can really get all the work done is to be there when the phone's not ringing and there's not a lot of interruptions going on. People always say, well, just shut your door and tell them not to talk to you. It just still doesn't work that way. I still can't really detach myself from thinking about what's happening in the rest of the office if I'm there during the daytime on the real busy part of tax season. That's why I just pretty much have to work the graveyard shift and just that's the way I do it. That's the only way I can actually get all the work done. And the main thing about tax season is extensions are very smart things. I've explained before why extensions can be very good. One thing I've noticed is new clients or people who have not been educated before, they aren't aware of the benefits and the privileges that come with doing an extension. Some people panic as if they're late filers. And I had to explain to somebody yesterday that was a brand new client that had never been on extension before. And of course, the only reason I did an extension was, number one, the information just came to me too late to do a real good job of a complicated tax return. And number two, I don't want to rush in a tax return that might need to be changed later. If you ever have to amend your tax return, you're basically going to have somebody actually physically sitting there reading and looking at what you sent them. The last thing you really want, not that anybody's doing anything wrong, but the best advice when you're dealing with the IRS, most people, the only contact with the government they even have other than paying their property tax or, you know, other than just whatever they have to do with the government once in a while, the only real contact you have with the federal government is usually just filing your tax return. My main thing is that just don't do anything to have them actually look at your things on a physical desk. Why bother? That's the thing about amending a return. If you have to amend a tax return, it's fine. We do it all the time. But unless you really have to, you just want to avoid amending. If it's a choice on April 14th between putting together a tax return that may not be completely accurate because the client is freaking out and they don't want to file an extension, but knowing that you probably would do a much better job if it was on extension and you don't really want to amend, it's so much smarter to just extend the tax return. You have them client make a payment with the extension so they don't get late payment penalties. And if they do an extension, like I recommend a lot of times, they're not late filing, that you're still on time. So I want to encourage people to at least, if somebody tells you that they need to extend your tax, if your tax man calls you on the 15th and says, I just can't get it done, I need to extend it, keep in mind that nine times out of 10, it's the smartest thing to do. Why rush? Why do something wrong? Amended returns are only when you have to, when you discover a mistake, when somebody sends you a form that they didn't send you on time and you have to amend your return, that's fine. But don't, it's always to me a a very bad idea to file a return on time in April to be just because you're so afraid of being on extension when you could take a little bit more time and do it really right The interesting thing this year, and I've had some people push back on me a little, and I believe they have wrong information because I've studied this very carefully. 
there's a standard procedure with the IRS that when there's a major disaster declared by the federal government, such as the campfire, the IRS does different rules and they allow for relief of penalties. During Katrina, there was tons of ways to avoid penalties for a time period following that Katrina disaster. I believe that happened in December one year. And there's just standard procedure for that. So what happened is this article came out, I think, end of March. And it basically was talking about the fact that due to the fires, if you are a Butte County resident or you have a business in Butte County, the way I interpret this, and of course this is not financial advice over the radio because I don't know your particular situation, but the way I interpret it, they're simply saying that if you have a filing between November 8th and April 30th that you that you miss, and that would mean, for instance, if you missed filing yesterday on the 15th, this thing is saying, and the way I read it, I've been reading IRS rulings and things for over 30 years, actually close to 40. The way I read it is this. They may still assess a penalty. So let's just say you had so many paperwork problems, you couldn't get things together by yesterday, and you forgot to file an extension. If you get that return filed by April 30th and there's penalties assessed, it says right in this letter from the IRS, you call them and tell them you're in Butte County. You don't have to prove that your house burned down. You just have to prove that you reside or have a business in Butte County. That's the way I read it. Now, this is not legal advice. I'm not an attorney. It's not even tax advice, even though I'm a CPA. I'm just telling you that there is actually a leeway this year. So in case you missed some filing yesterday, if you get it done by April 30th, there's a good chance that any penalty that you generated by missing, is it will be abated. It says right in this letter, if just call and they'll abate the penalty. It says it. There's always a chance they'll abate a penalty for any reason at any time, but you just have to take your chances. It's difficult to do. This particular one says if you're a resident of Butte County or you have a business in Butte County, if there's any filing deadline that you missed, you have until April 30th to correct that. That's my interpretation. I've read that thing over three or four times because some people were acting like, oh, no, that means you have to be a victim of the fire directly. Well, based, what they're really saying is everyone in Butte County is a victim of that fire. There's businesses that have hurt. There's people without their paperwork. I have people that I normally would help that are local or lived in paradise, and now they're 50, 100 miles away in different areas. So... It's impacted my business just in that respect, even though my business obviously was not involved in a direct fire. That's what you need to know. The main thing is talk to a professional. Don't take your neighbor's word for everything. There's quite a few things that happened this year regarding the taxes and regarding the new tax laws, and there's a lot of urban myths flying around that really don't, they aren't true. They don't hold water. If you don't investigate or ask a professional second opinion, you're only going to hear people that really aren't, and I'm not saying they're stupid or anything. They just, that's not their business. They don't understand it. I will say the main misconception for this whole new tax season and the new tax law for this season was this. There were quite a few people who went to get their taxes done, and when they filed, they have a lower refund than they did a year ago. That led some people to act like, oh, the tax law messed me up because I'm getting a lower refund. But in reality, at least 90% of all the taxes that I did, and I have a pretty good cross-section of low to high and self-employed and wage earners, uh, teachers, doctors, contractors, I do quite a big different group. I would say over 90% actually paid less tax in 2018 than they did in 2017, even on the same amount of income. The problem with the refunds are this. Last year when the 
tax law passed at the end of 17 in December. By about February of 2018, the government sent out a new withholding schedule to change everybody's withholding on their wages for their paychecks. They, in my opinion, lowered the withholding a little too far. It made people have more money on their net pay during 2018, but they did get lower refunds because those refunds essentially came to them early as more net pay per pay period. They then would go get their tax done this last couple months during tax season, and if their refund went down, if they didn't understand what was happening, they would think, oh, the tax cut raised my taxes. That's not the case. Over 90% of the taxes I did, probably 95%, actually had lower taxes than the year before on the same amount of income. But since the withholding went down, they absorbed that extra money during the year and kind of didn't notice it. They probably did notice it at the start, but then they got used to it. And if they got an extra couple hundred a month during the year, they might not have noticed it on their net pay, especially after the first month or so. But if you add up 11 months of that, that's $2,200 that you, your family was able to spend that you wouldn't have had before the new tax law. But it did influence the refund amounts. That's where if you hear that misconception of refunds going down because the tax law messed somebody up, I would say 90% of the time that's not true. And that's just from my experience with the people I've helped. Everybody has their own situation. That's why I say you need to consult a professional yourself and don't take anybody's word for anything. Even business buzz can't guarantee that your situation fits the one I'm talking about. But generally, these are all like kind of like national average kind of thinking on this. So we've got a lot of interesting facts to learn today and a lot of hopefully entertaining facts. I have... I had a question in my own mind, and this was from the end of 2017, because I just looked this up. Oh, here it is. It was a 2018 number. So my thought was this. I've talked before about the national debt being $21 trillion now. I've also talked about the $21 trillion that went missing in a 15-year span between two, two large departments of the U.S. government the Housing and Urban Development, and the Department of Defense. I was thinking, okay, how big, how can I explain to people how big $21 trillion is? One of the things I thought about was when you drive around, no matter where you go, drive around Chico, drive around the Bay Area, drive around Los Angeles, drive around any any city, any countryside, anything. And you look at all the houses and you think how expensive they are. And even in Chico now, since the fire, houses are probably 30% higher than they were before. And I always think about, look at all the money or the value. I mean, it's not really money, but it is value. In other words, those houses could be sold for dollars right now. Whether you consider dollars money, we've talked about that too, and we'll be talking more about it. I will be coming up on break number one. But I thought about it, and it's like all this, you you could have neighborhoods after neighborhoods, cities after cities, towns after towns, houses, houses, houses. You just keep driving by more and more. Even just in Chico, there's tens of thousands of houses. And I was thinking, how much is all this worth? And it must be, if we have a national debt of $21 trillion, and if $21 trillion was stolen in a 15-year period from two federal departments, how big must these houses be worth if you added it all up? And that's what I'm going to, when I come back from break number one, we're going to talk about the size of the value of houses in the U.S. because I don't think anybody here, in, including me, really understands just how gigantic of a number $21 trillion is. It's so amazingly big that it's, it's hard to believe. And in order to fathom how big that is, we're going to talk about the value of the houses added up together in the United States. That's that's every town, every city. 
you go here, you go there, you drive, you drive, you keep looking at these houses. They look around like down in Southern California and every house you drive by is worth at least five or $600,000. I mean, there might be a mortgage of five on it, but the actual value of that house is that kind of money. So I always wondered about that. I'm going to tell you about it after this break. Stay tuned. Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be right back. This is Pause to Pray, a moment to stop down from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for David Bernhardt, Secretary of the Interior. Mr. Bernhardt oversees the department responsible for the management and conservation of federal land and natural resources. Psalm 24.1 reminds us of our responsibility to care for God's earth. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to bless David Bernhardt as he manages our country's land and natural resources. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team, a nonprofit, nonpartisan ministry dedicated to encouraging prayer for our nation's leaders. To learn more, go to pausetopray.org. Praise the Lord. I'm Sharon Knotts inviting you to join me and my dad, R.G. Hardy, on The Sound of Faith, mornings at 10, here on KKXX. If you are drawn to inspirational preaching, informative in-depth teaching, and biblical perspectives to current issues under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, then Sound of Faith is perfect for you, because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 10 o'clock weekday mornings here on KKXX, Chico's Christian Radio. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I hope you had a happy tax season. It's over now. Now it's extension season. Extension season always follows tax season. Funny how that works. So I was talking about how you drive around places and you like you fly into an airport in Los Angeles and you see houses after houses and you know that down there the real estate's back up higher than it was 12 years ago and each little house is probably minimum of 300,000 even in Los even in no matter even if it's near the airport in Los Angeles and you just think man and so I'm thinking while I'm flying I'm like okay if our national debt is 21 trillion and if there was 21 trillion stolen which there was from HUD and Department of Defense in a 15 year period I mean okay the value of all these homes in the US then must be something huge like 500 trillion it's got to be 5 or 600 trillion dollars cuz every time you drive by a house and you rack up 300,000 minimum and then you go to some you know neighborhoods in orange county where these houses start at 700 i mean you could rack up millions just in 5 minutes of driving i'm thinking the value of houses in the us then must be like 500 600 trillion dollars right then reality hits me like a brick wall. I just looked up an article that I'm going to share with you. And of course, this is not, nobody's audited this, but somehow they probably calculated off with all the internet stuff. U.S. housing market value climb, and this is in 2018, climbs to $33.3 trillion in 2018. I was shocked to see that. I thought it was a misprint. I'm thinking, oh, they must mean $333 trillion. It's like, nope. You take every home in the United States, and it's only worth $33 trillion. That is how unmanageable and how never to be paid back the national debt of $21 trillion is. It's absolutely never going to happen. And that's why... I always encourage people to think twice about what it is they really have. The interesting thing also in this article is one-third of this total belongs to California. In other words, 
if the entire country's home values total $33.3 trillion, California's are $11 trillion just by itself. But my point is, $33 trillion, that must be a humongous number if it's the value of all the homes in the entire country. And the debt is $21 trillion. Now, that, again, every eight years that debt doubles. So I would venture to say that it'll probably hit $33 trillion in about four years based on the math. You know, things go uh, geometric. The, they don't go up in a straight line. They go up in a curved line. The, they call it a hockey stick formation. It's a geometric curve when things go up. So I would say probably by the year 2023, our national debt will be $33 trillion. Of course, by then, the value of all these homes might be $50 trillion due to inflation, asset inflation. I don't know if anybody's noticed any inflation on their paychecks lately because the whole problem with this fake economy we've got is that prices are going up, especially houses and stocks and uh, bonds and all the things that rich people own. But wages for the regular people aren't really going up very much, and that's really the problem with this whole fake economy, especially since what they call the Great Recession of, of 08, which I talk about a lot. So that was my first salvo of the day. I hope you find it entertaining. This show is all about entertainment value, not financial advice, because I don't know your particular situation. Not that I would be able to solve it even if I did, but you need to do your own research and you need to make sure that what I'm telling you is true. Don't believe me or anybody else, especially when it comes to your money. Most people are looking to just take part of your money from you back to them and you got to watch out. Okay, my next article that I want to share is a very short one. And the reason this one came up in my mind was here I am all during tax season helping all these clients, talking about how they've got their records, how they have to save. One of my most common questions that I get during tax season or anytime I'm talking to clients is, how long do I have to keep things like receipts? So I always explain that to people. So I would figure, okay, if the government requires us to keep all these receipts or else they'd take all of our money because they'd say we owe, you know, five times more tax than we reported that we owe because we took deductions. So I'm assuming, okay, if we have to keep receipts, I guess the government would have to keep receipts too and they'd have to have everything in order too, right? Again, things are not as they seem. I've got an article here. It's actually from today from my favorite news gathering site called Zero Hedge. Dot com. That's zero, H-E-D-G-E dot com. I read my news every day there. I don't read NBC. And the title of this is, The Pentagon's Bookkeeping is Atrocious. The Books are Wrong on Everything. And this is from uh, a guy named Max Slavo via SHTF Plan. I can't say what that means on the air, but if you think about it, you should figure out what SHTF means. And I'm just going to read this very short article. The Department of the Defense is the world's worst bookkeeper. The books are so atrocious that they are wrong about everything, and it's impossible detect, to detect just how bad the fraud and corruption that runs rampant through the Pentagon has become. Journalist Matt Taibbi, and he's from Rolling Stone. He's kind of famous. He's done some other famous articles. He told R.T.'s Lee Camp that he discovered it's not possible to make any sense of the books. Taibbi recently dove headfirst into the insanity that is the Pentagon's finances to find out how a much-lauded audit of the organization, which receives half a trillion dollars a year, failed to give the Department of Defense either a pass or fail. What Taibbi found was that the Pentagon operates under a system that is inherently unable to provide financial accountability, he said during an interview on Redacted Tonight. It's or This is a quote. It's organized so badly that when the Pentagon at the end of every year goes to ask for more money for the next year, they invent the numbers because they have no audit trail. They submit all those numbers to the Congress saying we spent this on that, but they don't actually have the documents, he said. 
The sheer quantity of the numbers makes it impossible to detect anything like fraud or theft because the books are all wrong at every single level of the system. The massive amount of waste and corruption is unbelievable, yet it's impossible to even get a handle on just how bad it has become. Taibbi also says that there is no way the Pentagon will ever change the way they do their books unless there is reform to how they receive their money. Unless the Pentagon cuts off weapons contractors, there will never be any type of reform, so don't hold your breath. The people sit, here's another quote, the people who sit on the Armed Services Committee and the Appropriations Committee are going to be primarily funded by military contractors, which means that none of those people are ever going to approve any measure that threatens to stop funding of the Pentagon until they get their books in order, Taibbi said. And the only way you can make the Pentagon make their books in order is to yank the money. The Pentagon is not known for their ability to reason or be responsible unless it's providing reasons that they should be responsible for the deaths of millions across the globe. So I told you it was a short article. So it really, that's one thing that really irks me when I'm helping all these clients trying to get their taxes figured out. It always irks me that if they were to be examined, they have to show all the details, all the backup, all the proof of every little deduction they're trying to take. But we have a government that's completely, completely insolvent, overspending, crooked, uh, bribing, blackmailing, you name it. And But you know, you and I have to actually follow rules and audit and keep all of our receipts. I just, I really, really feel there's a double standard and it always irks me when I see that the government itself is virtually unauditable. Now on the topic of trillions of dollars, I did want to share one other article. We're coming up on break number two, but it's called the thinly veiled Fed bailout of Europe. And this is actually from uh, way back at the end of 2011, but it's very apropos because nothing's really changed. We're going to get back to this after the break. We're going to talk about European bailouts with American taxpayer money. I'll be right back on Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned. How are you going to get to the Sacramento airport? Use North Valley Shuttle. It's easy online at NorthValleyShuttle.com. Don't be that person who bugs their friends or family to take you. Book online right now at NorthValleyShuttle.com. North Valley Shuttle has added new departure and arrival times each week for your convenience. Serving Chico, Paradise, Oroville, Gridley, Live Oak, and Yuba City, Marysville. North Valley Shuttle gets you there quickly and safely. Leave the car at home and let NorthValleyShuttle.com do the driving. License PSC 20791. Hi, this is Rob Walter, host of Red Sky Radio with Rob Walter. This is a program that proclaims liberty to the captives of our beloved nation, where truth trumps political correctness and where the uncompromised word of God exposes the works of darkness and sets free those held hostage behind the iron curtain of a shamelessly biased media. America, we have a trail to blaze. It's time to saddle up. It's time to ride. Join me at 7 a.m. on KKXX. Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. here on KKXX. This is you over 30 years ago. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And this is your mom now. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Roles change without us noticing. That's why AARP gives you the information to provide even better care for your loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. The people we call the unchurched often have a very different view than we have. Yeah, man, I believe there's a God, a higher spirit, whatever you want to call it. You can have faith in anything you want. There are many different views on God out there, so we want to be the station where people can tune in and find some real truth presented in a relevant, respectful way. Did you know that about a third of our audience doesn't even go to any church at all? Well, thanks to your financial support of our ministries, we're able to be here with a message for everyone. People who go to church and people who don't. Tell your friends about Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM.
Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm here on another nice Chico day. And we're going to spend a few minutes just talking about this problem that I've been warning you about for a while. I'm going to just explain how this goes. Uh, this is from a place called Phil's Stock World, and it's from it, it's with Lee Adler of the Wall Street Examiner. I guess he's some kind of commentator. That's not the Wall Street Journal. So this article says the ECB, that's the European Central Bank, is borrowing U.S. dollars from the Fed to bail out European banks, and that is in addition to the long-term refinancing operation. However, the borrowing is not called borrowing. It's called a, quote, temporary U.S. dollar liquidity swap arrangement. Yet it is really borrowing because it's going massively in one direction for the purpose of giving the European Central Bank dollars to lend to European banks so the central bank can avoid lending more euros. The ECB doesn't want to tarnish its inflation-fighting reputation and further devalue the euro. Instead, the Fed is taking billions of euros as collateral for the dollar swap. As Gerald P. O'Driscoll, Jr., former vice president and economic advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas and senior fellow at the Cato Institute, wrote in the Wall Street Journal, The ECB would also prefer not to create boatloads of new euros since it wants to keep its reputation as an inflation fighter intact. To mitigate its euro lending, it borrows dollars to lend them to its banks. That keeps the supply of new euros down. This lending replaces dollar funding from U.S. banks and money market institutions that are curtailing their lending to European banks, which need the dollars to finance trade, among other activities. U.S. banks and financial institutions do not want to lend European banks more dollars, and it would look bad for the Fed to do this unpopular lending directly, so the Fed has found an indirect route. The two central banks are engaging in this roundabout procedure because each needs a fig leaf. You know what fig leaves do. They cover things up. The Fed was embarrassed by the revelations of its prior largesse with foreign banks. Now I'm going to pause here and just interject. I've talked about this before on Business Buzz. In 08, our tax money went, and I believe it's something like $12 trillion, went to European banks to bail them out. So it says the Fed was embarrassed by the revelations of its prior largesse with foreign banks. It does not want the debt of foreign banks on its books. A currency swap with the European Central Bank is not technically a loan. In exchange for euros as collateral, the ECB gets non-technically loaned dollars, which it then lends to European banks. The additional dollars flowing to the European banks enable the European Central Bank not to release more euros to the European banks and into circulation. According to O'Driscoll, this Byzantine financial arrangement was designed perfectly to confuse people. The Fed's support is in addition to the European Central Bank's $638 billion low-interest loans to 523 Eurozone banks last week. And if 2008 is any guide, the dollar swaps will again balloon to supplement the European Central Bank's euro lending. So then the next paragraph goes into some dollars. I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of numbers. It says, no matter the legalistic interpretation, the Fed is working through the European Central Bank, bailing out European banks, and indirectly spendthrift European governments. It is difficult to count the number of things wrong with this arrangement. And the author puts in parentheses the Federal Reserve's covert bailout of Europe. Mr. Driscoll argued that the Fed has no authority to bail out Europe, although lack of authority has not stopped the Fed from acting in the past. Ben Bernanke met with Republican senators on December 14th to discuss the crisis in Europe. According to Senator Lindsey Graham, Bernanke told reporters that the Fed did not have the intention or the authority to bail out Europe. Nevertheless, the week Bernanke claimed he was not going to conduct an EU bailout, the size of the swap lines to the ECB ballooned by around $52 billion. O'Driscoll also argued that swap arrangements foster the moral hazards and distortions resulting from government intervention in the credit markets. Allowing the European Central Bank to do the initial credit allocation to favored banks and then some hope 
through further lending to spendthrift EU governments does not make the problem better. Moreover, this is another example of the Fed's lack of transparency. Non-transparency is a consistent theme of the Fed in spite of Bernanke's promises to provide more openness. Now, Bernanke is two Fed chairs back, so this article is a little older, but I'm sure the same stuff's still going on. Bernanke's statement just two weeks ago that the Fed had no intention of bailing out Europe is consistent with a long history of secrecy and deceptive behavior. Then it talks about all the dollar amounts. So what I was been saying is that we bail everybody out, we're printing dollars like they're going out of style, and nobody can face the fact that there are so many dollars in the world that they're becoming worthless. We were the steward, you know, the U.S. was the stewards of the what they call the world's reserve currency, but stewards are not supposed to print infinite amounts of what is supposed to have value. That's the whole basis of the problem that we're going to have when this sideshow is exposed and people realize that and and there's lots of dollars around now you and me we don't have a lot of dollars hanging around but the bankers and the wealthy and the government does and that's what's going on there's tons of dollars around they just aren't flowing down to us necessarily and if they do they go pretty fast it's kind of like in 05, anybody who bought a house in 05 or 06 knows how fast dollars can go when you pay 350 for a house that's worth 225 a year later. That's how dollars go if you time things wrong. So my point is dollars are meaningless. They're printed with a touch of a button. They aren't worth, they're only worth what people agree they're worth. And if the agreement ends, the value ends, and that's just what that's what we're going to be facing uh, at some point soon. I'm not sure exactly when, but it will happen at some point soon. Now, my other fun article today. Well, I've got a couple more, but not sure how many I'm going to have time for. Another fun article today. I want to remind you that whatever you hear, you can't always. It's not always correct, and sometimes it's actually deceptive. There could be a situation where someone's just actually wrong and made a mistake, but there also can be times where it's actually deceptive. One show that I've seen before, it's called Mad Money on CNBC. It's got a guy named Jim Cramer. He's kind of an entertainer. He's funny. He walks around and hits buttons, and he has call-ins. Now, I think those callers that call in, I think those are all staged. I don't think those are random calls. I think they're pre-planned and they're people he knows. That's my guess. I'm I'm not saying I know that for a fact, but it really seems that way. Everything's so perfect when they call in with just the right question, and that's just my opinion. I want to remind you of what happened in on March 11th, 2008. So I'm just going to read this article. On March 11th, 2008, Mad Money host Jim Cramer, who, believe it or not, is still on CNBC, told a viewer who wrote into his show, quote, Bear Stearns was fine, right before the stock absolutely collapsed. The stock was trading at $62 per share. Just five days later, the firm was mercy folded into J.P. Morgan Chase, Reed bailed out at $2 per share. This is an embarrassment, and it undoubtedly caused considerable pain for CNBC viewers who followed Kramer's advice. With financial, quote, advice like this, it's no wonder the network's ratings are hitting multi-decade lows. Here's the transcript, and then the, this website also has a link to the video. It says, here's the transcript. Kramer, Peter writes, should I, wor- should I be worried about Bear Stearns in term of, terms of liquidity and get my money out of there? Kramer responds, no, 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 Bear Stearns is fine. Do not take your money out. If there's one takeaway, Bear Stearns is not in trouble. I mean, if anything, they're more likely to be taken over. Don't move your money from Bear. That's just being silly. Don't be silly. That's the kind of advice you'll get from talking heads on the TV. Five days later, the $62 share was worth $2. That's unbelievable. And anybody who, anybody who listens to guys like that, That's where I'd say you have to do your own due diligence. You can't go by anybody's 
stuff on listening to any financial advice. And even if you hire a financial advisor, you should talk to more than one. A lot of them parrot the same idea, like, oh, just stay in the stock market. It always goes up. And that leads me to my next article I want to share with you, which is another one I found on Zero Hedge today. It actually came out about a month ago, but I looked it up today because I had made it a bookmark because I knew I would want to share this with you. The title is The 20 Craziest Investing Facts Ever. Okay, number one, this is from a place called the irrelevantinvestor.com. Number one, since 1916, the Dow has made new all-time highs less than 5% of all days. But over that time, it's up 25,568%. And then the little follow-up on that is 95% of the time you're underwater. The less you look, the better off you'll be. Number two, the Dow has compounded at less than three basis points a day since 1970. Since then, it's up more than 3,000%. And then the comment on that one is compounding really is magic. Uh, some of these are kind of weird, and I, I can't, uh, I don't have time to really follow the logic on every one of these, so I'm going to get the interesting ones. Oh, here's one for the 1970s, which is 10 years. The Dow gained 38 points in the 1970s. <laughs> That's interesting. 38 points in 10 years? That would not have been a good place to be. Plus, inflation ate up your money in the 70s. Remember the Jimmy Carter period? Then he says, why am I using the Dow instead of the S&P 500? They're effectively the same thing. The rolling one-year correlation since 1970 is 0.95. I'll be right back after this last break with a few more investing tidbits. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. Many infallible proofs. This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible curriculum. The historian Luke wrote in the book of Acts that Jesus presented himself alive after his death with many infallible proofs. Now, the Greek word for infallible proofs indicates that something is convincing. So what were these proofs of Christ's resurrection? Well, what would convince you that someone came back from the dead? You'd want to spend time with the person and see him walking and talking. And that's exactly what these infallible proofs were. Jesus appeared to his disciples and over 500 others. His many visitations after his resurrection showed his followers he was alive. This Easter, rejoice, he's alive. Get answers to your questions about the truth of God's Word when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and discover more about the Gospel by going to AnswersRadio.com. This is you over 30 years ago. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And this is your mom now. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Roles change without us noticing. That's why AARP gives you the information to provide even better care for your loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Tax season's over. Extension season has begun. I'm reading this interesting thing from uh, about the twentieth crazy, crazy, the twenty craziest investing facts ever. And I got a few more I wanted to share. I'm not going to go through every one of them, but they're pretty entertaining. Here's one here. At the low in 2009, U.S. stocks were back to where they were in 1996. And his comment on that one is stocks for the long run, the very long run, usually, sometimes. Then the next one is at the low in 2009, Japanese stocks were back to where they were 
1980. Now, here's here's a real interesting one, and this is what I talk about when you look at in look at the inflation you encounter. I'm I've got another one I saw the other day. Oh, it was my case of cat food that I buy for our cats at home that I've been buying for quite a while. And when they're not on sale, this case of 32 cans is at a regular store. I mean, it's cheaper at the discount places, but at a regular grocery store, this case is 20 bucks and it's been 20 bucks for at least a couple years. Well, the other day, that same case at the same store with the same number of cans was $22. That's another case of a 10% inflation in no time. But they keep saying that inflation is less than 2%. I beg to differ. So this next uh, craziest investing fact is very entertaining. Listen to this. U.S. one-month Treasury bills went 68 years with a negative real return. And the comment is, what's safe in the short run can be risky in the long run. I know right now you can invest a one-month bill and get something like 2.4%, but I guarantee inflation is a lot higher than 2.4%. At least it was at, it, it was at my office this year. With the new tax law and all the education I had to do, I mean, I'm part of the problem, I guess, but uh, fees had to go up. There's no way I can do work for what I used to do when everything I spend is twice as much. Here's another one. Gold and the Dow were both 800 in 1980. Today, gold is 1,300 per ounce. The Dow is near 26,000. I talked about this just a few weeks ago. The gold-Dow ratio, or the Dow-gold ratio, is something you really need to pay attention to. The Dow-gold ratio was 1 to 1 in 1980. That's when gold perked up and the Dow wasn't very high. They were each at 800. Since then, gold is 1,300 and the Dow is 26,000. Now, here's some more interesting facts from this list. Over the last 20 years, gold is up 340%. Stocks are up 208% with dividends. And then he says, you can support any argument by changing the start and end dates. Oh, here's the good one that I was just talking about. Since 1980, gold is up 153%. Inflation is up 230%. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. The Dow lost 17% in 1929, 34% in 1930, 53% in 1931, and 23% in 1932. And he says, be grateful. Oh, here's a really good one. Warren Buffett is The NASDAQ 100 gained 225% over the same time. Well, that's interesting. Now, here's a really good one. 96% of U.S. stocks generated a lifetime return that that match one-month treasury bills. (laughs) So you want to put your money in something that on average earns less than a safe one-month treasury bill? With no stress, well, those are, the, those are the choices we make and you make. And you have to do your own due diligence. Don't rely on me. I'm obviously the world's worst timer. I've been telling people to look out for a crash for the last ten, 10 years, and I'm still waiting. But I do know that it will happen. But, you know, nobody should listen to my advice directly because I'm not a good timer. But I do know that we are, this whole system is built on debt and as I explained before to you on Business Buzz, what you own is just a paper obligation that someone else has to fulfill. You don't own it if they don't fulfill it, and that's called counterparty risk. Pretty much everything you, everything you have has what's called counterparty risk. So now I'm going to read a little bit from my favorite book. I've only got a few 
minutes left today. It sure is nice to be out of my office and back to the studio here. It's very peaceful and quiet, and it's just really nice. I'm glad you have a little time to spend with me today. I appreciate that. So I'm going to read from one of my favorite books. This book is called A New Earth. Uh, the author is Eckhart Tolle. I've talked to him, talked about him before. I've read some of his things before. And this is a chapter called Chapter 8, The Discovery of Inner Space. Now this is the kind of thing that helps me when I'm working the graveyard shift, trying to get all those taxes done and trying to help people, trying to call them back the next day when I'm tired. This is the kind of thing that I use to help my my mind, and I encourage you to look into these kind of things too. Just like with your investments, do your own due diligence, see if something fits that you like out of these things, and you know, read some of this alternative stuff. So this is called The Discovery of Inner Space. According to an ancient Sufi story, there lived a king in some Middle Eastern land who was continuously torn between happiness and despondency. Hmm. Does that sound like anyone you know? The slightest thing would cause him great upset or provoke an intense reaction, and his happiness would quickly turn into disappointment and despair. A time came when the king finally got tired of himself and of life, and he began to seek a way out. He sent for a wise man who lived in his kingdom and who was reputed to be enlightened. When the wise man came, the king said to him, I want to be like you. Can you give me something that will bring balance, serenity, and wisdom into my life? I will pay any price you ask. The wise man said, I may be able to help you, but the price is so great that your entire kingdom would not be sufficient payment for it. Therefore, it will be a gift to you if you will honor it. The king gave his assurances and the wise man left. A few weeks later, he returned and handed the king an ornate box carved in jade. The king opened the box and found a simple gold ring inside. Some letters were inscribed on the ring. The inscription read, This too will pass. What is the meaning of this? asked the king. The wise man said, Wear this ring always. Whatever happens before you call it good or bad, touch this ring and read the inscription. That way you will always be at peace. This too will pass. What is it about these simple words that makes them so powerful? Looking at it superficially, it would seem while those words may provide some comfort in a bad situation, they would also diminish the enjoyment of the good things in life. Don't be too happy because it won't last. This seems to be what they are saying when applied in a situation that is perceived as good. The full import of these words became clear when we consider them in the context of two other stories that we encountered encountered earlier. The story of the Zen master whose only response was always, Is that so? shows the good that comes through inner non-resistance to events, that is to say, being at one with what happens. The story of the man whose comment was invariably a laconic maybe illustrates the wisdom of non-judgment and the story of the ring points to the fact of impermanence, which, when recognized, leads to non-attachment. Non-resistance, non-judgment, and non-attachment are the three aspects of true freedom and enlightened living. Those words inscribed on the ring are not telling you that you should not enjoy the good in your life, nor are they merely meant to provide some comfort in times of suffering. They have a deeper purpose— to make you aware of the fleetingness of every situation which is due to the transience of all forms, good or bad. When you become aware of the transience of all forms, your attachment to them lessens and you disidentify from them to some extent. Being detached does not mean that you cannot enjoy the good that the world has to offer. In fact, you enjoy it more. Once you see and accept the transience of all things and the inevitability of change, you can enjoy the pleasures of the world while they last without fear of loss or anxiety about the future. When you are detached, you gain a higher vantage point from which to view the events in your life instead of being trapped inside them. You become like an astronaut who sees the planet Earth surrounded by the vastness of space and realizes a paradoxical truth. The Earth is precious and at the same time insignificant. The recognition that this too will pass brings detachment, and with detachment, another dimension comes into your life, inner space. 
Through detachment as well as non-judgment and inner non-resistance, you gain access to that dimension. When you are no longer totally identified with forms, consciousness, who you are, becomes freed from its imprisonment in form. This freedom is the arising of inner space. It comes as a stillness, a subtle peace deep within you, even in the face of something seemingly bad. This too will pass. Suddenly there is space around the event. There is also space around the emotional highs and lows, even around pain. And above all, there is space between your thoughts. And from that space emanates a peace that is not of this world, because the world is form and the peace is space. This is the peace of God. Now you can enjoy and honor the things of this world without giving them an importance of, and significance they don't have. You can participate in this dance of creation and be active without attachment to outcome and without placing unreasonable demands upon the world. Fulfill me, make me happy, make me feel safe, tell me who I am. The world cannot give you those things, and when you no longer have such expectations, all self-created suffering comes to an end. All such suffering is due to an overvaluation of form and an unawareness of the dimension of inner space. When that dimension is present in your life, you can enjoy things, experiences, and the pleasures of the senses without losing yourself in them, without inner attachment to them, that is to say, without becoming addicted to the world. The words, this too shall pass, are pointers toward reality. In pointing to the impermanence of all forms, by implication, they are also pointing to the eternal. Only the eternal in you can recognize the impermanent as impermanent. When the dimension of space is lost or rather not known, the things of the world assume an absolute importance, a seriousness and heaviness that in truth they do not have. When the world is not viewed from the perspective of the formless, it becomes a threatening place and ultimately a place of despair. The Old Testament prophet must have felt this when he wrote, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. So I wanted to share that because that's one of those nice short chapters that really, I mean, if you ever get into a situation where you just feel like things overwhelm you and like he's saying, even when you think it's something good or bad, if you feel overwhelmed, I think that whole thing of this too shall pass is really a good thing to keep in mind. I try to do it all the time. I thought about that about three days ago. It's really the main part of the tax season that is unpleasant is when you know there's about three days left. You have X number of clients that really, really want you to get their stuff done by the next day so they have a little cushion of time, but you have to actually just put all those files in order of when they were received and do whatever you can to get them done on time, maybe not real early. That is one of those times where I consciously read things like this when I finally get a break and I say, this too shall pass. And it, it keeps me in mind and I say, you know what? No matter how busy I am, no matter how much work, no matter how much sleep I need to skip for the next few days, this too shall pass. And that kept me going because when it's about, like I say, three or four days before the deadline and I have to decide which ones I'm going to finish and which ones just came in too late, even though I'll let somebody down somehow, I always think, well, it doesn't matter because as of Monday evening, the 15th, this will be over. And that's a sort of a this too shall pass idea that really helps whenever you get stressed out. I encourage you to think about that. Well, it's been a fun afternoon with you on Business Buzz. I'm glad you had a chance to listen in. Keep me in mind. I'll try to entertain you every time I see you, and I'm going to have some good guests coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned to Business Buzz next week, and I'll talk with you soon.
KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR. From townhall.com, I'm Keith Peters. Radical changes to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 could be in store if LGBT activists get their way at the Supreme Court. The justices will hear two cases, one from people claiming they were fired because of their sexual orientation and another involving a funeral home employee who was fired after disclosing he intended to dress as a woman while on the job. Attorney John Bursch of the Christian Legal Group Alliance Defending Freedom says only Congress can alter Title VII. Whether the law should bring about these changes raises important policy questions that the American